This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of November 16th. And on Monday, we have the contestants Andy Wood, a writer originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Kelly Hogan, a clinical trial project manager from Laguna Hills, California, and John Bassard, a marine aviator originally from Ringo's, New Jersey, whose one-day cash winnings total $26,200. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, a 20th century decade, masks, dam building, Ivy League schools, women in music, and All eyes, I-Z-E in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. They did well. Yeah. On this board. John, we talked last week and then on Friday about like wondering if that was just a good board for him or if he really was that like knowledgeable and in in a broad uh, sense. And it seems like he is. He's that knowledgeable. Yeah. This game, he also uh, showed a good good command of of the topics and and of the buzzer. Mm Mm-hmm. And... Both of the other contestants had a pretty solid first round as well. Discounting the Daily Double Wager, I think they had um, a Coriat. Uh, I don't know the Coriat of just this round, but I think that it's around 15400 unless I did my math wrong, out of a possible 18000 So, like, they, they did a very solid job as a group on this board. Yeah. Ivy League schools was up my alley oh really why oh no reason and they uh uh, they did a nice job on it Mm -hmm. we had um a picture of handsome dan uh the bulldog asking what mascot what school he became the mascot of in 1889 that's yale their mascot is a bulldog I will say one for thing for them. Their mascot is a good thing to have as a mascot, as opposed to like having a color as your mascot, like no. like the color like crimson. That is one good thing about Yale. There might be others. Who knows? I don't know. I don't. Know. I can't speak to that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, they have like bulldog songs with arfing in them. So that that's um. That's a thing. That's a thing. Handsome Dan the Bulldog. Uh, Daily Double number one is the last pick. It is the 30th clue in the round. Uh, It is in the masks category at the $1,000 level. John finds it. He is in the lead at uh, $7,800 over Kelly's $3,800 and Andy's $3,800, and he wagers $2,000. He gets the clue. In this French novel, a singer named Christine longs to see beneath the mask of the title character. That is Phantom of the Opera, which he gets correct. Uh, so he jumps up to 9,800. I thought the mask's clues were fairly gettable. Yeah, I agree. Although I forgot about the man in the iron mask. Oh, that was uh, Leo DiCaprio, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the Jeopardy round. Uh, and the scores are what I just told you. John had jumped up to 9,800. Kelly and Andy were at 3,800. Uh, the double Jeopardy round categories are... A Busy Body, Jeopardy World Tour, Elusive Titles, Furniture Stuff, Foreign Words and Phrases, and The Celebrities Booze. 
when Alex says he knows where he would start, and I think Kelly was picking up what he was laying down because she goes to the, the booze category at the $400 level for the first pick. Yep. And these were all celebrities who had... Who, who have involved themselves in some kind of production of alcohol. Yeah, some kind of entrepreneurial or like licensing, whatever. Ryan Reynolds does aviation gin. Mm-hmm. Apparently... Channing Tatum has a vodka brand. I was not surprised to not be surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> that that sort of sums it up. Yeah. Oh, I loved the elusive titles category. Mhm. It was all related to titles uh that are based on some other literary work. We had um a Steinbeck novel that has a title from the Battle Hymn of the Republic. That is uh, the Grapes of Wrath. He is trampling out the vintage where the Grapes of Wrath are stored. Something about Thomas Gray and Thomas Hardy. Mm, that's not interesting. Oh, and then, oh. <laughs> um, and then we had at the $1,200 level, um, Milton's Unless the Almighty Maker Them Ordain His Dark Materials to Create More Worlds inspired the title of a trilogy by him. That's Philip Pullman, uh, the His Dark Materials yeah. trilogy. Kelly got that one. Yeah. Kelly also had a, a wrong guess on that Steinbeck clue. Um, she yeah. thought of, of mice and men, which is an illusion, but to the wrong thing. Uh, right. Of mice and men is from a from a Burns poem. Robbie Burns. Yes. Well, at the, the $2,000 level, you know, the clue is Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart takes its title from this man's poem, The Second Coming. And wouldn't you know it, my, my gut reaction was to go like, Wordsworth, because I can't get that out of my head. But I remembered that I was wrong about that, and I got it. I remember remembered that it was Yates. I remembered so that it was Yates. But damn it, it was still. It was like the first thing was like, oh, that's a Wordsworth poem. No, it's not. <laughs> All right. So daily double number two comes in the a busy body category at the two thousand dollar level. Uh, Andy finds this one. And he makes a bold wager of 5,000 of his 8,200. John is at 12,600. Kelly's at 5,000. So if Andy gets this right, he will take the lead. And his clue is chronic alcohol drinking is a big cause of this disease, but it can also occur due to obesity or hepatitis C. And that's cirrhosis. He gets that right. So he jumps into the lead. Yeah. So... We tell the celebrities over in the booze category. Yeah, <laughs> let them keep it under control. Just let them know. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at you, Ryan Reynolds. The third Daily Double is at pick number 24 later in the round. Uh, Andy finds this one as well. He was at 12,400. John was up at 18,200. And Kelly was at 7,400. And he made another big bet of 8,000. You got the clue? Borrowed from German, this five-letter word means an intense but non-specific anxiety. And he gets it right with angst. So he jumps into the lead again, but then John takes pretty much the rest of the round. Mm-hmm. Even, even with Andy making making 13,000 on the daily doubles in Double Jeopardy, John <laughs> still still kept himself in the lead. Yeah. Looking at their Coriat scores, um, which 
it occurs to me, having just chatted about somebody who's not a big Jeopardy fan, but but tuned in to an episode of our podcast, let me say, a Coriat score is a way of measuring somebody's Jeopardy success that does not take into account wagering. So it takes out the wagers and just uses the true value of the clues. Um, John's Coriat score is more than twice Andy's Coriat score. So it did not work. We'll, we'll, we'll cover this, but it didn't work out for John today. But he's a very strong player. He yeah. answered almost half of the uh, questions in this game mm-hmm. and finished with a Coriat score that was more than his two competitors combined. Yeah. So uh, at the end of the double Jeopardy round... John is in the lead with 24,200. Kelly's at 7,000. Andy is at 20,400. So pretty close to John because of those big wagers. Mm -hmm. And we get the final Jeopardy category, 18th century Americans. And the clue, one eulogizer of this man noted he was able to restrain thunderbolts and tyrants. Kelly has wagered 6,500. And she guesses who is George Washington. That is incorrect. Uh, So she drops down to 500. Andy has wagered 6,399. So he's looking to stay above Kelly, even if she goes all in and gets it right. And he has the correct response here. Who is Franklin? And he also drew a kite and a lightning bolt. So he's correct. Which which would have been really funny if it was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so he moves up to 26,799. Um, John has uh, wagered 17,000. That's that's a little more than a cover bet. And he also has guessed George Washington. So Andy's the only one who thought who uh, interpreted that Thunderbolt clue yeah. correctly. That was really the thing to go for here. So John drops down. And uh, finishes in second place, and Andy is our winner going into Tuesday. Yeah, I really thought John had it. He seemed pretty strong on American history, and I was like, oh, yeah, Ben Franklin Mm -hmm. in the bag. Yeah. But, you know, that's how it goes. Yep. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Holly Bishop, a program director from Shasta, California, Dan Berg, a stay-at-home dad from Santa Rosa, California, and Andy Wood, a writer originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, who just won $26,799. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. Hatsamore, U.S. City Sites, Color Films, Blank Um, with U-M in quotation marks at the end of a word, Ellison, and Wonderland. I kind of liked the U.S. City Sites category. I thought those were those clues were well put together. Yeah, I agree. I I liked the way they were made. I didn't necessarily feel like any one of them was more difficult than any other one. Mm. Though, I mean, because there were there were very clear pointers in each of them. Yeah, you know, Pittsburgh had Carnegie Science Center and Duquesne Incline. Carnegie should automatically make you think Pittsburgh. San Antonio mm-hmm. had Alamo Heights. Minneapolis was Mary Tyler Moore statue and Purple Rain House. If anything, I feel like I felt like that might be the one that was hardest. But I have a I have a pretty strong like uh, Prince and Mary Tyler Moore association with uh, with Minneapolis. Oh, so do I. Um, but but, I... but yeah, no, I, I guess I hear you. You're like the Starbucks reserve roastery and tasting room at the at the two hundred dollar level. Is a, a, that's a that's a maybe arguably the easiest. Sure, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll grant you that one. That one was yeah. pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, uh, call back to Learned League. I mean, I'm sure unintentional in the blank um category at the $1,000 level. This component of Plaster of Paris is hydrous calcium sulfate. Um, Dan guessed talcum, and then it turned into a triple stumper, but that's gypsum. And I, I only knew that because we had a question about that in Learned League recently. Uh, Daily Double number one comes up in the color films category at the $600 level. Um, And these are all films that have a color in the title. It's the ninth pick. Andy finds it. And he makes it a true Daily Double with $1,800. Dan has $2,000 at this point and Holly has zero still. And he gets the clue. The title of this 1999 film comes from the linoleum floor of Death Row. And he correctly responds, what is the Green Mile? So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Andy has a solid lead with 10,200. Dan has 3,000. Holly has 1,200. And we get the double Jeopardy categories Musical Vienna, Seven Letter Words, Eponymous Elements, The 15th Century, Around the Garden, and the TV spinoff's Parent Show. The best television show comes up at the $800 level there. The clue is Angel, and the correct response, Holly gets this one, is what is Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Yes. I knew that. Good. Having never seen an episode of either show. Yeah. Well, I should do a rewatch, see if I still think it holds up, but I can tell you now, I'm going to think it does. <laughs> Just making a called shot there. <laughs> um... I really enjoyed the musical Vienna category. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of triple stumpers in it that I want to point out real fast. The $1,200 clue was damaged by World War II bombs. The State Opera House reopened with a production of this Beethoven opera in November 1955, 150 years to the month af- after the work's premiere. Andy guessed what is the Fifth Symphony. Clearly missed the word opera. Um, it is a video clue, so the word opera may not have been on the screen because um, mm-hmm. video clues often don't show the whole show the whole clue on the game board. Um, they show just the like first words and last words so that you can kind of time your response. But uh, that is Fidelio, which is Beethoven's only opera. So if the question is which Beethoven opera, it has to be Fidelio. Right. And uh, Fidelio was not very good in comparison. Like, it's fine. Hmm. It, it is an opera, and it has, like, quality music. But as operas go, it is not a high-quality opera. Um, and for that reason, Beethoven wrote and rewrote it <laughs> a number of times, particularly the overture, and never really found success with it. And that may or may not have been the reason that he only wrote one opera. Hmm. You know, he he's known, he's well-known enough. He didn't need yeah. operas also. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. And then at the $2,000 level, this great song composer and Vienna native who died at age 31 is memorialized all over the city, including a statue in Stop Park. Uh, and that is Franz Schubert. Uh, Schubert wrote a lot of German art song called Lieder. He's basically the most prominent composer of German art song. And he died very young. So those are notable trivia things. Mm-hmm. Schubert. Yeah. Uh, I just talked a lot about that. So daily double number two. Shows up in the 15th century category at the $800 level, and he finds it. And he is in the lead at 10600 over Dan's 4600 and Holly's 3600 He wagers 5000 which is a good move at that point. Could have bet me even more, really, uh, to try and, try and lock the game out early. 
He gets the clue, the Spanish Inquisition began by asking those seen as religious offenders to do this, from the Latin for sing again. And he guesses what is renounce, but the word is recant. Mm-hmm. Recant. So he drops back down, still in the lead, but mm-hmm. much closer. Yep. And then um, six clues later, he finds daily double number three at the $1,200 level of the eponymous elements category, uh, the 12th pick. And he wagers 3000 of his, at this point, 8000 Dan is at 5800 and Holly's at 5200 So if he misses, he will drop down to third. Although it's, you know, it's like the middle of the round. His clue is, this element is named for a Polish-born scientist and her husband. Um, That one's pretty straightforward. He knows Mm -hmm. it. What is curium? Yeah. The eponymous elements category was was fun. And I think you didn't have to be too much of a chemistry buff. You just needed to know some element names. Yeah. Uh, So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Andy is at 19,800. And that is a lock. Not by much, but it is a lock, because Dan is at 9,400 and Holly's at 8,000. And they get the final Jeopardy category, French literature. And the clue, an 1862 novel says this character would have arrested his own father and would have denounced his mother. They all three almost got it. Uh, Holly wagered 79.99, all but a dollar, and she wrote who's Javert, which is correct. Uh, from Les Mis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan wagered nothing. And he wrote, who is Jobert, which is far enough off of the pronunciation for it to be considered incorrect. Uh, but it didn't matter because he wagered zero anyway. And then Andy mm-hmm. got it right. He wagered 999 and uh, wrote, who is Javert? Mm-hmm. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Deanna Bolio, a communications specialist from Campbell, California, Kevin Karp, a screenwriter from Scottsdale, Arizona, and Andy Wood, a writer originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, whose two-day cash winnings total 47598 And we get the Jeopardy round categories around the world. I got them historical blues, food, uh, V-O initials will give you the initials you identify the artist doing the voiceover, requests, and the phrase that pays. The historical blues was fun. They saved it for last. But I really liked that, uh, getting to hear Alex go through his renditions of, of these clues. It, it was set up in, like, kind of in, in poetic meter to, to sound like a blues you know, someone singing the blues sort of thing. Yeah, the blues has that kind of very recognizable kind of cadence to it. Mm-hmm. And in that category we had at the $1,000 level, hundreds of miles of this barrier got to stop any German assault. Got a design, but no Belgian line. Think that may be a fault. Uh, and Kevin rang in and said, did he say who is or what is Maginot? Um, that's the Maginot line. Yes. I... I Learned a lot about the Maginot line from Kyle's Deep Dive That's a while right. back. Yeah. Check out our back catalog. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. I also it learned a lot about that. the entirety of human knowledge. Just kidding. It doesn't yet. That's why we still make this podcast. Yeah. A couple months and we'll probably be there. Yeah. I thought the voiceover category was really hard. Although maybe it's just a really big trivia blind spot for me. Oh, I, I, it was super easy for me. Okay. <laughs> um, but... I will say that uh, 
I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. I watch children's movies, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I love the Lego movie. I love it so much. I did get the Lego movie one. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, that clue was Wild Style slash Lucy in the Lego movie E.B. And that's Elizabeth Banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I don't pay enough attention to, like, who is voicing my cartoon characters. Hmm. If their face is on the screen, then, you know, then I then I kind of make the connection to the celebrity. But Sure. Yeah. Daily Double number one. Shows up in the Around the World category at uh, the $800 level. It's pick number 20. Deanna finds it. She wagers 2000 of her 4000 Andy's in the lead at 5200 and Kevin is back at negative $800. Uh, she gets the clue, this largest Alaskan island is home to the largest type of grizzly bear. And she gets it correct with what is Kodiak. So mm-hmm. she takes the lead there. Yeah, I don't know how I had that knowledge in my brain, but it was there when I reached for it. Mm-hmm. Although, again, like last week with the sour and the and the sourdough, something in my brain was like Klondike. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Just go to your corner store and get some Klondike bars. Get that thing yeah. out of your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very strong performance again in the Jeopardy round. Again, they have like a like a fifteen thousand and change combined Coriat for this board. Mm-hmm. Get almost all of it, um, and with very pretty few wrong answers. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Deanna's in the lead at nine thousand. Andy is at seven thousand, and Kevin is out of the hole at four hundred. And they get the Double Jeopardy categories, 90s newsmakers, animal etymology, worry lines, one subject nonfiction, TV crime shows, and starts with E. We get Daily Double number two really close to the beginning of the Double Jeopardy round as the fourth pick at the $1,600 level of starts with E. Kevin finds this one and wagers $1,500 of his $2,000. Andy's at 7,000, Deanna's at 9,800, and Kevin gets the clue, a Christian holiday or any sudden insight, and he pretty pretty clearly knew this one as soon as he saw it, Uh, that was Epiphany, Epiphany being the holiday 12 days after Christmas that commemorates the visitation of the Magi. There's um, an interesting thing I I learned about actually in like my music theory classes in the subject one subject nonfiction category, the $2,000 level. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Sifo wrote a book about it. Ignored by the Romans and Greeks, it became the most important tool in mathematics. Um, Andy guessed what is the slide rule. <laughs> um, I, I wonder if he accidentally rang in because that's a, that's a bizarre <laughs> guess, but uh, that was incorrect. The answer is zero. I believe, if I, if I remember correctly, zero, or the concept of zero as like a mathematical thing uh, originated with like the Olmecs or something, hmm. or at least the earliest record of it. Not to say that, like it spread from every like no one else came up with it later. Yeah, but yeah, the Greeks and Romans did not use zero. They didn't like the concept of nothing. Yeah, uh, like philosophically, and so much of their math is based on ratios rather than like mm. firm numbers, like you know ratios and variables and and degrees of angles and things like that, rather than. Like, just mathematical kind of, like, f- like hard numbers. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. Which is an interesting thing 
To be fair, zeros are sort of poisonous for ratios. I mean, not poisonous, but like, you know. Sure. Doesn't doesn't combine well. Sure. Yeah, I assumed that Andy saw the word, the words, the most important tool in mathematics and assumed that they were looking for some kind of physical implement. Mm -hmm. I I wondered (laughs) if he was like maybe trying to remember the name of the abacus. And then ended up saying slide rule. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Pretty sure slide rules didn't come up until much later. Yeah, I think I think those are significantly later. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that the Romans and Greeks were ignoring it so much as that they didn't have those. Yeah. Um, How could they ignore automobiles? Yeah. Uh, Daily Double 3 is at pick number 19. It's in the one subject nonfiction category. It's up at the $1,200 level. Deanna finds this one also. She is in the lead at 13800 Andy is at 11400 and Kevin's at 3900 She wagers 2000 Gets the clue. Vince Beiser's The World in a Grain is about this substance that concrete and glass, among other things, are made out of. And she gets it pretty quickly, but with uh, what is sand. Yep. I have not read any of the books in this one subject nonfiction category, but uh, they also mentioned books about screwdrivers, milk, and... Chanel number five. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Deanna is in the lead with 17,800. Andy is in second place with 12,600. Kevin has 7,900. And they get the category country name origins and the clue. This island country was named for a 16th century Spanish king whose name comes from the Greek for lover of horses. Kevin wagered 7,000. Not sure what his rationale exactly was there. I mean, it gets him up sort of high enough that if Deanna misses, he's kind of in in a pretty strong position. Um, Although he could still get passed by Andy, um, as in fact he will be. But he has the correct response. What is the Philippines? Mm -hmm. What are the Philippines? Do you say is or are for the Philippines? That's a good good question. I mean, the yeah. country is called the Philippines. Yeah. So as a singular unit, you would call it, you would say is. Yeah. What is, what is the a, Philippines? Yeah. It, just, yeah. it feels a little weird saying it. Um, Andy has wagered 4,600. If he gets it wrong, he'll go down to 8,000, which would be above Kevin if Kevin bets zero. I don't know if that's... that's... That, might, that might be his rationale. Um, yeah. Yeah, he probably should wager less if he's assuming Deanna is making a cover bet, I would think. Yeah. yeah. This is all moot. He has, what is the Philippines? He does not drop down. He goes up to 17,200. And Deanna has wagered 7,401. That is a cover bet. She has not come up with an answer. She wrote down, what is hip? Um, so clearly she... She's a fan of Tower of Power. What is hip? Right? I that's that's what I was thinking. Yes. Um, No, she. uh, That's what we were all thinking. Yeah. uh, No, she has clearly remembered that Greek for horses is hippo. Oh, Um, that too. Yeah. And is coming at it it. from that side. If you think about the lover of horses part, like the the love Mm -hmm. part first, you get you can. If you remember that Phil is uh the Greek wrote. Greek root for uh, one of the words for love, mm-hmm. um, and that will get you to the Philippines. But yeah, she sort of started from the wrong side and got stuck trying to come up with a country with hip in it. 
So she drops down, and Andy is our champion again. Yes, indeed. So that takes us into Thursday. And on Thursday, we have Tuan Nguyen, an engineer originally from Pomona, California, Emily Brogren, a registered nurse from Santa Maria, California, and Andy Wood, a writer originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, who is now up to $64,798. We get the Jeopardy round categories, American Music Awards, uh, Central America, Patriotic Art, with a question mark, These Are the Days, All That, All in quotation marks, and and a bag of chips. We can tell that my attempt to become slightly more conversant in the music of today is working because I knew some of those American Music Awards clues. Yeah. I knew Billie Eilish. I knew Maroon 5. I knew the Jonas Brothers. And of course I know who sings Waterfalls, the 90s mega hit, because of course I do. Of course you do. Of course I do. That's TLC. Yeah. Um, but I could If you know Chumba sang. Wumba, you know TLC. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, still working on Portugal, the man. Uh, are we were are supposed you? To, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I couldn't remember who that band was. Yeah, um, me neither. No, not even close. Yeah. 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 But good. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I, w- I was able to get to those four, although Billie Eilish gave me trouble because I was like, is that who it is? I don't remember. I, I learn a lot through uh, my students, you know, who they listen to and who they talk about. So that is helpful to me. Yeah. Are they Billie Eilish fans or not so much? Uh, I have some, I have some Billie, some girls who really love Billie Eilish. Yeah. Uh, not many Jonas Brothers fans among my high school students. Mm, uh, I'm surprised. Mm. I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm, I'm not either. <laughs> yeah. We find the first Daily Double at the $400 level of patriotic art, which has turned out to be a category about art that has stars or stripes in it. <laughs> um Andy finds this one as the 12th pick. He makes it a true daily double with 5,000. It's a bold wager. I like a bold wager. Emily has 1,200 at this point. Tuan has zero. And he gets the clue. Asked for a nativity scene, British artist Edward Byrne Jones produced an 8 by 12 foot watercolor star of this city. And he correctly responds, what is Bethlehem? And brings him up himself up to $10,000. 12 yeah. clues into Jeopardy round. That's, that is massive, yeah. Yeah. I mean, does Bethlehem count as a city? It's not really a city. I mean, but, the song says know. it's a little town. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I suppose yeah. if it's a municipality and it calls itself a city, who's to say it's not? Yeah. It was, in many ways, functioning as like a suburb of Jerusalem at that time. It's very close to Jerusalem. Uh, contemporary Bethlehem is in the West Bank, and so you have to cross into the Palestinian territory to mm-hmm. um, to visit it, which is an interesting experience. They... uh try and make it real smooth for the tourists um sure but <laughs> uh, yeah i i uh, at somebody's advice i opted to go through the checkpoints um that residents go through 
mm-hmm. when I when I went rather than like taking like you can get on like a like a tour bus for Americans and, and bypass all of that. But it was very interesting to to go through the, the checkpoint that the people who live there have to use and troubling. But yeah, right. that is that is neither here nor there. Yeah. Anyway, Bethlehem is correct. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Andy has 13,000. Emily has 2,000. Tuan has 4,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, 19th century plays, African-American history. It's a fact. Familiar discussion point here. That's just the everything here is supposed to be a fact. Um, uh, environmental agreements, characters who should play Jeopardy. And an out-of-body experience. Alex says each response will be a body part, but used in a different context than what we're used to seeing. Although these yeah. are mostly like, what are they? They're like idioms. or No, they're not idioms. Some of them are idioms. Yeah. Um, but just other meanings of that word. Yeah. So yeah, we have on a clock's face, which, hey, there's another body part. Um, these parts show you the time. That's the hands. Mm-hmm. Um Outwardly projecting parts on the rim of a gear or saw. Those are teeth. At the bottom of the category, we get the second daily double. It's pick number five. They started out here. Tuan finds this one. Uh, he is at 6,200 uh, ahead of Emily's 4,400 and behind Andy's 13,000. And he makes it a true daily double, wagering all 6,200. Uh, and he gets the clue, an extensive deposit in a rock fissure containing desirable minerals or ore. And he knows that that is a vein. Mm-hmm. So he gets up very close to Andy at that point. Yes. We had a, a fun kind of, I've only seen it in print moment in the characters who should play Jeopardy category at the $1,600 level. Uh, the evil genius from the world of the Watchmen can sign in as Adrian Fight or with this other name, whatever he likes. Tuan guessed who is Dr. Manhattan. That is a different character from Watchmen. Um, and Andy tried to pronounce uh, the correct response and guessed uh, what is Ozymandias? Ozymandias is, uh, is the correct response. And that was because, he's, because he pronounced it phonetically were, correctly based yeah. on the spelling. Uh, mm-hmm. He gets that. We've talked about that rule before, so we have. And and when somebody gets you know penalized because they they clearly are familiar but don't quite um, yeah, pronounce they, they, it either correctly or as a viable pronunciation of the spelling. Right. Um, so this is kind of the flip side of that. Yep. Daily double number three is in the nineteenth century plays category at the sixteen hundred dollar level. It seems to me many of the ones in this category are not well known plays. Um, but they, you know, kind of used them to ask about something else about the subject yeah. matter or whatever. Yeah. Emily finds this one and wagers 4,000 of her 7,600. Andy is at 18,600 at this point. Tuan is at 13,600 and she gets the clue. This Scandinavian's last play, When We Dead Awaken, ends with an avalanche burying the two main characters. And she knows her Pavlovs. Um, that is Ibsen. Yeah. Scandinavian yeah, I, playwright. I would immediately go with Ibsen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Andy is in the lead at 19,000. 
Emily is at 13,600, and Tuan is at 13,200. Good scores all around. Mm-hmm. And they get the Final Jeopardy category dog breeds. And the clue, Alpen Dog, was a proposed name for this dog breed. And they all got it right. Tuan wagered 401 to get a dollar above Emily. Probably understanding that if Andy makes a cover bet and gets it wrong, he will drop below uh, them. And he gets it right with what is St. Bernard. Emily has wagered 13000 and also got it with what is a St. Bernard. Uh, but Andy did indeed made a cover bet of uh, 8201 and he got it right as well. So he is a four-day champion mm-hmm. going into Friday. Yeah. I started thinking about Bernese Mountain Dogs oh. for a second. And I was like, Emily... <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's that's never going to be a final jeopardy right yeah i mean that that was the first thought that came to mind for me and i was like well I'm probably right yeah final jeopardies almost always are going to be something kind of broadly accessible but the clue is a little known thing about you know whatever that is so it's not it's not generally going to be like a lesser known dog breed yeah it's going to be, you know, St. Bernard. Right. So on Friday, we have the contestants Rhonda Kraft, a training specialist originally from Muskegon, Michigan. Charlie Fonville, a producer originally from Wichita Falls, Texas. And Andy Wood, a writer originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, whose four-day cash winnings total $91,999. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Everything's Jake, Potpourri, Number, please. Silent L, Ports, and Science Abbreviations. <laughs> we had a hidden theme in the potpourri category at the $200 level. This real housewife of Atlanta is married to Greg Leakes. That's Nene Leakes. Mm-hmm. At the 400 a song by Silento mentions the whip and this other dance. That's the Nene. At the $600 level, a triple stumper. This Hawaiian goose has half-webbed feet for walking on rough lava rock. That is the Nene. The Nene? Nene. The Nene. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, oh, of course, in Hawaiian, you pronounce those E's as, as like an A mm-hmm. sound. And then I thought the eight hundred and thousand didn't fit quite as well, but you know, I mean, how many how many nenes can you come up and nenes can you come up with? Right uh, before you yeah. just have people like literally guessing, was it nene? Oh, okay, yeah. got it right. <laughs> yeah. So at the eight hundred dollar uh, level, they were asking for the band Sha Na Na, and at the thousand dollar level, the song lyrics Na Na Hey Hey. Yep. So that was fun. I thought. Yeah, it was. It was interesting. I, I like that kind of thing. That's fun. And it's still mm-hmm. potpourri. Yep. Which will always be a category forever and ever. Mm-hmm. In the silent L category, I thought, I don't know enough about Michigan accents to say for sure, but I thought that we saw some regional accent variation calling the category name into question. Mm-hmm. Rhonda and Andy are both from Michigan. Oh, I guess... There wasn't there wasn't a one that I thought that Andy pronounced a silent L with Michigan. Charlie did though. Yeah. Um, we had at the two hundred dollar in the Chris 
In the Christmas Carol Silent Night, all is this, all is right. Rhonda responded with what is calm, but I did, I heard a little L from her there. And I think I put a little tiny bit of L in calm. And uh, also at the $800 level, the clue was there's a silent L in this word for silently sneaking up on prey. And Charlie definitely pronounced that L in what is stalk. Yeah, I, I, I put, heard a, that I as put well. a little L in that. Yeah, stalk. Yeah. There's a there's a tiny bit of L there. My spouse and I have pretty different regional accents and sometimes fight about what has a silent L and what has a pronounced L. Right. And to me, I, I think I purposely put an L in calm and stalk mm-hmm. because there are other words that would sound exactly the same that have different meanings. Right, like stock photos yeah. or um, like a dot com. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely pronounce like a dot com differently from calm. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. We found the first Daily Double in the number please category. Uh, it was pick number 26. Andy found it. Uh, and he made it a true Daily Double for 5,000. Charlie was at 6,200 and Rhonda was at 1,600. And he got the clue, the Main Street of America was a nickname for this historic route. And he gets what is Route 66. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like uh, 538 comes much more readily to mind right around now, election time. Yes, I, <laughs> yeah. had that, I had that same thought, the $1,000 clue in that same category. Nate Silver is the editor-in-chief of this website. Uh, Charlie got it. That's 538. But I knew it, too. And I was like, wow, I would, I would not have known that uh, even, I don't know, a month ago. Well, probably a month ago, because election has been almost over for a month but yeah it very recently <laughs> yeah my ability to remember that number sort of starts increasing around like late september early october of election year right and then drops off after the election <laughs> disappears again because yep. who who should care about the electoral college no one yeah uh <laughs> so at the end of the jeopardy round uh, Andy is up in the lead at 10,800. Charlie is at 7,800 and Rhonda is at 1,800. Th- those, again, very, very good mm-hmm. Jeopardy round scores. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, books and authors, Rainbow Coalition, The Ancient World, Buildings, Five Letter Words, and 20th Century Pop Culture. And wouldn't you know it, that's where, uh, that's where Rhonda goes right away, which would have been my absolute last pick. Mm-hmm. Although I actually did get them all right. They were fairly... They were not deep cuts. Yeah, agreed. Charlie bounced us over to the ancient world after that. There was some good stuff there. We've talked about the Cairo symbol before, mm-hmm. I think, and Constantine yes. on the podcast. Yes. I got a question about Constantine seeing that in the sky uh, on my nice. first episode. Yes. Yes, that's right. And then we came back to the 20th century pop culture category where we found Daily Double number two. Rhonda found this one and wagered 2,000 of her 3,000. Andy's at 10,800 at this point. Charlie has 13,000. And she got the clue. Antonio Passan's fascination with a still newish medium and with air travel inspired him to call his toy wagon this. And she knew it. That is the radio flyer. I, I have had that thought. Like, why is this called a radio flyer? Yeah, it's a weird name for a, for a toy wagon. For a wagon. Because, like, yeah. we have a radio flyer for the kids. Like, who, mm-hmm. you know? 
So I've thought that a lot. Now I know. It's just because yeah. he liked it. Yep. <laughs> There's no better reason. I was kind of bummed about the two triple stumpers in the books and authors category. At the $1,600 level, Stories from a South African Childhood oh, yeah. is the subtitle of this memoir by Trevor Noah. That book is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Born a Crime is the answer there. Yeah, definitely worth your time. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I listened to the audiobook, yeah. um, which I, I highly recommend really for any for anyone who's like who like hosts their own TV show or like a lot of the Saturday Night Live people do a great job reading their own work. I feel like it adds a lot uh, when you get somebody who has that kind of background. Yeah, because um, they're not just reading. They're like kind of performing it for you. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then at the $2,000 level, uh, this woman wrote the Holocaust set children's book, Number the Stars. I also loved that book. Oh, yeah. that was such a great book. Um, that's Lois Lowry. Uh-huh. Um, she also wrote The Giver. That's her other kind of very well-known, very dark, mm-hmm. very impactful one. Um, and then she wrote some other kind of more lighthearted kind of everyday American child kind of stuff. Um, right. Anastasia Krupnik series was a favorite of mine growing up. Daily Double number three shows up in the buildings category. Pick number 24. Charlie finds it. Uh, he is up in the lead at 17,000 over Andy's 12,000 and Rhonda's 9,000. And he wagers 4,000. Nice round numbers there. Mm-hmm. He gets the clue. A Baha'i temple in New Delhi bears the name of this sacred aquatic flower and they show a picture of it and it is very clearly a lotus like it is a building shaped like a lotus and charlie gets it you're with lotus uh so he Mm -hmm. jumps up even farther into the lead that's right so at the end of the double jeopardy round um charlie's in the lead with twenty five (sighs) thousand. wow uh andy has fourteen thousand. Rhonda has nine thousand nine thousand again is a good score yeah And we get the Final Jeopardy category, Musical Theater. I love it. (laughs) And the clue is, the word practical was dropped from the title of this hit musical not long before it premiered in 1981 on London's West End. We go to Rhonda first. She has wagered 8,993, so everything but $7. She responds, what is ribs rules? Ribs, I guess, is her dog uh we had a good anecdote about her dog during the interview segment so she didn't know it so she gave a shout out to her dog woo he's gonna appreciate that yes yeah apparently her dog was like i can't i can't remember the exact details something about um like being trained in in like in a prison in like a program where you know prisoners learn to train dogs so that's kind of cool um yeah yeah andy has wagered everything but ten dollars normally you would think like Rhonda's everything but seven wager would be if everybody else made an almost everything wager would would leave her with seven dollars and she'd be likely to beat the most because usually every people go with everything but one or maybe everything but three Andy's left would have left himself 10 here, but he got it correct. So that doesn't come up. He responds, what is cats? Uh-huh. Um, so if you're thinking of T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, that's the connection there. Charlie has wagered 5,000, which is a cover bet and a bit. And he also has the response, what is cats? So he is the winner and we'll see him back on Monday. That's right. 
And uh, man, Andy was uh, Andy was close to that five game. He was, and he was such a good competitor. And Charlie also is just played oh, yeah. a great game. Great game, like yeah, nothing. Great no, game. No, no criticism on Charlie there, but yeah. yeah. I mean, who knows? Andy might still make it to a tournament. We had plenty of four mm-hmm. game winners in ours, so. Yeah, and with uh, with that with that ninety one thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollar total, that that puts him pretty, in pretty probably <laughs> a pretty good position. Yeah, yeah. So that is the end of the week. Uh, this is our time that we remind you we have a Patreon, uh, but it is more important to us that if you have to choose, you uh, send your money towards something that is uh, helpful to our society at large and. Uh, we point you toward communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com. Those may not have been in the news as much recently, but it doesn't mean that things are better. It just means we're focused on different things right now. So uh, let's keep in mind that the work is not done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just keep helping out. That's right. And still wear and your masks, please. Yes. Sorry. More than I ever. Missed my cue on that. Yes, wear your masks. <laughs> Put them over your nose as well as your mouth. That's how they work. All right. So, Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. Are we talking about the ancient Olympics? We are not talking about the ancient Olympics. Okay. Are we talking about the Black Star Line and Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa? We are not, although (sighs) I considered it. Are we going to be talking about, because this has come up a lot, are we going to be talking about the consumption? Oh, no, we're not talking about the consumption. Uh, I'm sorry. No, we have, we have talked about... Um, I had mentioned that my husband suggested this would be a good deep dive topic sometime. Uh, so Thursday's game in the Double Jeopardy round environmental agreements category. $1,200 level. Spain agreed to a 1958 high seas conservation treaty, but said it didn't change things in the waters around this British territory. Uh, that was the other one. Uh, uh, that's all right. All right, we're talking yeah. about Gibraltar. You were talking about Gibraltar. You know, I've been to Gibraltar. Um, I know. I remember that you've been to Gibraltar. And, like, I really did not know much of anything about Gibraltar going into prepping the deep dive, except that it's a British territory. Yeah. M- Sort of, you know, in in kind of an like like on on the Iberian Peninsula, um, and I knew the phrase "the Rock of Gibraltar," and I knew there was something about monkeys. Um, so that's what I had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got a little more now, although um, you know, I I uh, I learned this for the deep dive, so hopefully I got it right. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, as always, I start out being like, oh, this will be a snap. I hope there's enough material here. And then I get way into the weeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I thought I'd I thought I'd thought look into Gibraltar a little bit. Great. See if I could understand a little bit of the history of Gibraltar. So yeah, Gibraltar. Here we go. All right. Uh, so as I said, Gibraltar is a British overseas territory at the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, it is very small. It's 2.6 square miles. Uh, its only land border is with Spain. It is dominated by the Rock of Gibraltar, a monolithic limestone promontory. 
And at the foot of the Rock of Gibraltar is the town of Gibraltar, uh, which presently has about 32,000 inhabitants. Um, and it is strategically important because it controls the Strait of Gibraltar, um, the 8.9 mile wide entrance to the Mediterranean Sea. I believe Morocco is on the other side mm-hmm. there. So, um, historically, there's some evidence of uh, some prehistoric habitation of Gibraltar. Um, It seems to not have been inhabited in ancient times, but was visited by Phoenicians, Carthaginians, and Romans, um, with some evidence of, like, kind of religious ceremonies. Later, occupied by the Vandals and subsequently the Goths. Um, And then we get into uh, the first of kind of three eras of the history of Gibraltar. Um, So we're going to start with Moorish Gibraltar from 711 to 1462 CE. Yeah. Um, And then we're going to go to Castilian slash Spanish Gibraltar and then British rule. So in 711 CE, uh, on April 30th, uh, the Umayyad general Tariq ibn Ziyad leading a Berber-dominated army, sailed across the strait. He first attempted to land on Algeciras, but failed. Um, upon his failure, he landed undetected at the southern point of the rock. Uh, and it was here, it was at this time that Gibraltar was named. Coming from the Arabian words, um, hopefully I'll say them close to correctly, uh, Jabal al-Tariq, uh, the mountain of Tariq, the general's name. And uh, it fell under Moorish control at this time, but little was built during the first four centuries. Um, It becomes part of the Umayyad Caliphate's territory. In 1160, the Almohad Sultan Abd al-Mumin ordered that a permanent settlement, including a castle, be built. The castle received the name Medinat al-Fat, City of Victory. On completion of the works in the town, the Sultan crossed the strait to inspect the works and stayed in Gibraltar for two months. And uh, the tower remains standing today, also known as the Moorish Castle. Uh, So in 1309, uh, while King Ferdinand IV of Castile laid siege on Algeciras, Alonso Perez de Guzman was sent to capture the town. Um, So this was the first siege of Gibraltar in 1309. There's going to be a lot of sieges in this deep dive. Yes. Um, The Castilians took the upper rock from which the town was bombarded. The garrison surrendered after one month. Um, There were about 1,500 inhabitants of Gibraltar at that time. Uh, In 1310, uh, Gibraltar was granted its first charter by King Ferdinand IV of Castile. The charter included incentives for people to settle there, such as offering freedom from justice for anyone who lived in Gibraltar for one year and one day. Um, they're trying to get, you know, I mean, they're trying to get their their people in there. Uh, right. 1316, Gibraltar is unsuccessfully besieged in the second siege of Gibraltar by an ally of the Emirate of Granada, the Azafid Qaid Yahya ibn Abi Talib. I'm not sure I'm doing a great job with these names. Better than I would. Yeah. And in 1333, a Marinid army um, uh, led by Abd al-Malik, the son of 
Abul Hassan, the Marinid Sultan, uh, recovers Gibraltar after a five-month siege, so uh, the third siege of Gibraltar. King Alfonso XI of Castile attempted to retake Gibraltar, aided by the fleet of the Castilian Admiral Alfonso Jofre Tenorio. A ditch was dug across the isthmus. Um, while laying the siege, the king was attacked by a Nasrid army from Granada, um, so the siege ended in a truce. This is the fourth siege of Gibraltar. We're on siege number four in 1333. Ooh. In 1344, after the siege of Algeciras, Algeciras was taken over by the Castilian forces. Gibraltar becomes the main Marinid port in the Iberian Peninsula. And during that siege of Algeciras, uh, Gibraltar is playing a key role as the supply base of the besieged. In 1349, Gibraltar is unsuccessfully besieged by the Castilian forces led by King Alfonso XI. In 1350, the siege was resumed, um, again unsuccessful, mainly due to the arrival of the Black Death, which decimated the besieging forces and caused the death of the king. Um, So this one's the fifth siege of Gibraltar. In 1374, following a period of internal instability in the Marinid Sultanate of Fez, Abu al-Abbas Ahmad of Fez asks for Muhammad V of Granada's help, uh, possibly as a condition of the alliance or as reward for Muhammad's successful expedition to Africa. Gibraltar was handed over to the Nasrids of Granada. Sometime in the 1370s, Algeciras, which is another port on the Iberian Peninsula that's come up a couple times, um, is raised to the ground and the harbor is made unusable, increasing Gibraltar's strategic importance. In 1410, the garrison in Gibraltar uh, mutinied against the king of Granada and declared for the king of Fez, who sent his brother Abu Said over to Gibraltar to take possession of the city. Uh, He also took over other Nasrid ports, such as Marbella and Estepona. In 1411, the son of Yusuf III of Granada, Ahmad, recovered Marbella and Estepona and next laid siege to Gibraltar. Uh, So this is the sixth siege of Gibraltar um, and recovered the city for the kingdom of Granada. So there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of back and forth here. And I don't quite understand all of these powers and they kind of shift now we head into spanish rule which these some of these names and powers are at least a little bit more familiar to me as we get into um like this is going to be like 15th through early 18th century so moorish rule over gibraltar came to an end in august 1462 when a small castilian force launched a surprise attack uh the castilians mounted their attack while Gibraltar's senior commanders and townspeople were away paying homage to the new sultan of Granada. And after a short assault that inflicted heavy losses on the defenders, um, the garrison surrendered to Enrique de Guzman's son, Juan Alonso, who had the title the first, the first Duke of Medina Sidonia. The King of Castile, Henry IV, declared Gibraltar to be uh, the crown's property, not the personal property of the Guzman family. He restored the charter granted to Gibraltar in 1310. And in 1463, uh, Henry IV becomes the first Christian king to visit Gibraltar. In 1467, 
in the midst of a revolt of the nobility against the king, uh, the forces of the Duke of Medina Sidonia, um, after a 16-month siege, take Gibraltar. The half-brother of Henry IV, Alfonso of Castile, a claimant to the throne, granted the Duke of Medina Sidonia lordship of Gibraltar. So this was the this was the ninth siege of Gibraltar. All right. So in 1469, the first Duke of Medina Sidonia has died. Um, his heir Enrique de Guzmán um, changes sides, and uh, in reward, Queen Isabella confers Gibraltar on him as part of his domain. In 1501, Ferdinand and Isabella ask the Duke of Medina Sidonia for the return of Gibraltar to the domains of the Spanish crown. And the Duke agrees and cedes the town to the monarchs. So uh, at this point, Gibraltar is unambiguously Spanish. Um, Yeah, there we go. In 1540, Corsairs from the Barbary Coast uh, landed Ooh. at Gibraltar, <laughs> uh, looting the town and taking many captives. And I put this in the deep dive. There, there's a lot of stuff like this because, like, it's a strategically important, kind of centrally located place. Um, but I put this in because we had our um, Barbary Pirates deep dive. So yep. in 1607, during the 80 Years' War between the United provinces and the king of spain a dutch fleet uh surprised and engaged a spanish fleet anchored at the bay of gibraltar so this is the battle of gibraltar or the first battle of gibraltar um in 1621 we have the second battle of gibraltar where a spanish squadron crushed the the voc is like the yeah the dutch east india company uh ships at the at the strait of gibraltar um and then we head into the things are things are relatively quiet for a little bit. And then we get the War of Spanish Succession. Woo! Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in 1700, King Charles II of Spain dies, leaving no descendants. In the autumn, he had made a will bequeathing the whole of the Spanish possessions to Prince Philippe of Bourbon, a grandson of Louis XIV, backed by France. The other pretender to the throne, I feel like pretender is sort of a biased term, but that's that's yeah, what I was reading. He's uh, not, he's uh, not yeah. around to yeah. quibble. Yeah, is um, an Austrian Habsburg, uh, Archduke Charles, supported by the Holy Roman Empire, England, and the Netherlands. In 1704, we have the 11th siege of Gibraltar, <laughs> an Anglo-Dutch fleet under the command of Sir, Sir George Rook, um, chief commander of the Alliance Navy, besieged Gibraltar, demanding its unconditional surrender and an oath of loyalty to the Habsburg pretender to the Spanish throne, Archduke Charles. Uh, the governor of Gibraltar, Diego de Salinas, refused the ultimatum. Uh, this was a combined attack um, along with um, a brigade of Dutch Royal Marines and I think British Marines. So they besieged Gibraltar in the name of Archduke Charles. And a few days later, August 4th, 1704, um, the governor surrenders the town to uh, Prince George of Hesse, uh, who took it in the name of the Archduke as Charles III, King of Castile and Aragon. 
Um, it is unclear when exactly uh, Gibraltar became British territory. Okay. Because, because in the War of Spanish Succession, British it, the, the, the British forces are fighting on behalf of this Austrian guy with a claim to the Spanish throne. But in the course of the War of Spanish Succession, they, you know, they, they have this siege, they take Gibraltar uh, in his name. And at some point, it becomes, you know, kind of British territory. And uh, there's some there's some debate about how exactly that came to be not strong documentation. The, the the story like the sub the history written later doesn't exactly match documents of the time. And so there's some there's some ambiguity about how exactly that played out. Okay. Uh, there's a tradition of dating it to this 1704 event, but in 1704 they were you know taking Gibraltar in the name of. Uh, this would-be king of Spain. When the Spanish garrison marched out of Gibraltar on August 7th, um, almost all of the inhabitants, about 4,000 people in total, evacuated the town, um, refusing to swear allegiance to Charles III and instead professing their loyalty to Philip. The, on August 24, the Alliance fleet under the command of Rook set sail from Gibraltar and intercepted a joint Spanish-French fleet that attempted to recover Gibraltar the result was kind of ambiguous with heavy losses on both sides, uh, but the Spanish-French fleet was stopped and never arrived at Gibraltar to attempt to retake it. Um, I believe both sides claimed victory because of the losses they inflicted on the other side. In September, um, troops of France and Spain start to besiege Gibraltar to try to recover it. This would be the 12th siege of Gibraltar. British Admiral Sir John Leake and the Governor Prince George hold the fortress. And over the course of the rest of the war, British the British governor and garrison become the de facto rulers of Gibraltar. Um, so by 1713, this is an unambiguously British territory. On April 11th, 1713, uh, the territory was ceded to the crown of Great Britain in perpetuity by Spain under Article 10 of the Treaties of Utrecht. In 1727, from February to June, we have the 13th siege of Gibraltar um, as Spain tries to recapture it. And then in 1779, the great siege of Gibraltar. This is the 14th uh, and the most recent military siege of Gibraltar. I think we're at the end of sieges now. Um, this was an action by French and Spanish forces to uh, take control of Gibraltar from the established British garrison. Um, the garrison led by George Augustus Elliot survived all attacks and a blockade of supplies. Nice. In 1782, work on the Great Siege Tunnels started. The tunnels became a huge, complex system of underground fortifications, which now crisscrosses the inside of the rock. Um, once the siege was over, the fortifications were rebuilt and in the following century, the walls were lined with Portland limestone, um, which gives the walls their present white appearance. In 1804, Gibraltar saw an epidemic of uh, malignant fever, um, traditionally called yellow fever, but now it is believed to have been typhus. Um, over a third of the civilian population of Gibraltar died. Oh. Um, yeah, I... Don't really understand the Battle of Trafalgar, and that would be a whole other deep dive, but <laughs> Gibraltar was strategically important in it. That was 1805. And in 1830, 
the British government changes the status of Gibraltar from the town and garrison of Gibraltar to the crown colony of Gibraltar. And responsibility for its administration is transferred from the war office to the colonial office. Um, In 1869, the Suez Canal was opened, um, which increased the strategic value of Gibraltar. Uh, The Gibraltar economy at this point is mainly based on commercial shipping um, and import-export trade. um, And also it uh, gets a new income source with the opening of a coaling station for steamships bound for the Suez Canal. In 1891, there's a tragedy in the Bay of Gibraltar, um, the steamer Utopia, in heavy weather, slammed into the iron-plated British battleship, the HMS Anson, and sank in the Bay of Gibraltar. 576 people died. In 1908, um, Britain builds a fence across the Isthmus. The territory that that fence is on is disputed. Britain says it is within their territory. Spain claims that it is on Spanish soil. So the exact kind of border of where uh, where where the British territory of Gibraltar ends and where Spain begins is disputed. Hmm. In 1940, the civilian population of Gibraltar is temporarily evacuated um, to make Gibraltar a military fortress during the Second World War. Um, there's extensive tunneling during World War II. The total length of the tunnels increased greatly during the war. They, there were, before the war, seven miles of tunnels, which is already a lot of tunnels. Yeah. But that is increased to 25 miles of tunnels within the Rock of Gibraltar. The entire garrison of 16,000 could be housed within these tunnels, um, uh, along with enough food to last them for 16 months. Within the tunnels, there were also an underground telephone exchange, a power generating station, a water distillation plant, a hospital, a bakery, ammunition magazines, and a vehicle maintenance workshop. On July 18, 1940, uh, the Vichy French Air Force attacked Gibraltar in retaliation for the British bombing of the Vichy Navy. The naval base and the ships at Gibraltar um, played a key role in in the provisioning and supply of the island of Malta while it was under siege during World War II. Mm-hmm. The Germans wanted to um, attack and capture Gibraltar and the Rock of Gibraltar. Um, this was going to be codenamed Operation Felix, um, but Francisco Franco did not really want to allow the German army onto Spanish soil, <laughs> um, so that plan was moot. However, in response to learning of uh, this uh, frustrated Operation Felix, British forces launch Operation Tracer, uh, which was a contingency plan that was to be implemented if Gibraltar were to fall to Axis powers. So a small force was to be hidden in a cave um, and remain behind operating a covert observation post. Uh, This was basically a suicide mission. The chambers for it were completed in late summer of 1942, and there were six men who were selected to um, remain behind and be sealed into what they called the stay behind cave should Gibraltar be conquered. Rumors of uh, Operation Tracer and the stay behind cave circulated after World War II, um, but they were only rumors until 1997 when explorers uh, exploring in those tunnels found some of the chambers 
Um, and then 10 years after that, government doc- documents were released confirming the plans of Operation Tracer and that that's what these caves were for. And in 1944, the situation in Gibraltar is considered safe and uh, the civilian evacuees are allowed to return to their homes. Um, in 1950, Gibraltar's first legislative council is convened um, as they move toward self-like home rule. In 1955, at the United Nations, Spain, which had just been admitted, initiated a claim to the territory, arguing that uh, the principle of territorial integrity rather than self-determination applied in the case of the decolonization of Gibraltar, and that the UK should cede sovereignty to Spain. Um, unsuccessful. Unsuccessful. (laughs) No success. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In 1967, uh, they hold the first sovereignty referendum in Gibraltar, where Gibraltar's voters were asked whether they wished to uh, pass under Spanish sovereignty or remain under British sovereignty. Over 99% voted in favor of remaining British. In 1969, Britain introduces full internal self-government under a new constitution, with an elected House of Assembly, Spain closes its border with Gibraltar, withdraws its labor force, and cuts transport and communication links in protest. In 1973, Gibraltar joins the European Economic Community alongside the UK. In 1980, the Lisbon Agreement between the British and Spanish governments initiates the gradual reestablishment of talks over Gibraltar. In 1981, um, Gibraltarians are granted full British citizenship after a campaign against the British Nationality Act, which had proposed to remove their right to enter Britain as uh, as residents of Gibraltar. Hmm. In 1982, the border between Gibraltar and Spain is reopened, but only to pedestrians under some uh, limited circumstances. And then there's like numerous proposals around renegotiating the status of Gibraltar over the course of the 1980s and 90s. Too many to really get into here, but, you know, a a bunch of, you know, different proposals kind of get floated, but nothing comes of them. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2001, the UK government announces plans to reach a final agreement with Spain over the future of Gibraltar, which would involve shared sovereignty. And then in 2002, there's another referendum, which reaffirms almost total uh, Gibraltarian opposition to British uh, to uh, British government proposals for joint British-Spanish sovereignty. Almost everyone who was eligible to vote voted. I don't remember. I, did, I didn't copy down the percentage, but I believe like over 90% of eligible voters voted. 18,087 votes were cast. 187 voting yes to British joint British Spanish sovereignty and 17,900 voting no British sovereignty only. So um, that's, uh, I think, just under 99% mm-hmm. uh, to just over 1%. So pretty conclusive. Um In 2004, Gibraltar celebrated 300 years of British rule. Spanish officials felt this was insensitive and labeled this as the celebration of 300 years of British occupation. (laughs) In 2006, um, ministers from Britain, Spain, and Gibraltar sign a landmark agreement further easing border controls. Um, Spain agrees to allow flights to Gibraltar's airport 
The deal does not mention sovereignty at all. Flights later down the road uh, stopped just because they were not profitable. There were not enough people on these flights, Mm -hmm. but they are permitted at this point. And in 2006, there is a referendum where voters approve their new constitution confirming Gibraltarian home rule um, and renaming the House of Assembly the Parliament of Gibraltar. And uh, that's about what I have for the history of Gibraltar, the tension over Gibraltar between the UK and Spain seems to be, you know, ongoing, if, you know, if somewhat stabilized. Mm -hmm. Some miscellaneous other stuff about Gibraltar. um, The Upper Rock is a nature reserve, home to 230 or so Barbary macaques, the only wild apes or monkeys found in Europe. I was going to say the only primates that I was like, no, wait, it's full of humans. Um, <laughs> there is a superstition that if the apes ever leave Gibraltar, so will the British. In 1944, Winston Churchill was so concerned about the dwindling macaque population and what it meant for um, British Gibraltar that he sent a message to the colonial secretary requesting that something be done to um, ensure that the that the Barbary macaque population was sustained. Gibraltar's economy is focused on financial services, online gambling. Uh, they have um, very favorable regulations for uh, online gambling businesses, uh, shipping and tourism. The currency is the Gibraltar pound um, issued by the government of Gibraltar. Gibraltar pounds are legal tender in Gibraltar alongside English pounds. Hmm. Um, and Gibraltar is one of the most densely populated territories in the world, with about 32,000 people and, as I believe I said, 2.6 square miles. So that's Gibraltar. There it is. Yeah. There were way too many names in there. there a lot I of even, names. <laughs> I even skipped some of the names. So are you ready for a quiz? Oh, yeah. All right. I, I always think that I've written an easy quiz and then I then I realize that it's not as easy then, as i meant it to be then you realize i'm a doofus so <laughs> nah well it's like it's like it's easy if you've already got it in your brain but all the questions come from my brain anyway inspired by the rock of gibraltar this is a quiz about rocks yeah so question one let's start out low on the hardness scale by asking what scale is used to measure the hardness of rocks uh with one being the hardness of talc, and 10, the hardness of diamond. That would be the Mohs hardness scale. That is correct. For 10 points. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Get it. Uh, I don't have any fun facts about the Mohs hardness scale. Um, It it is what it is, you know. It's just straightforward. Question two. A breed of this kind of animal was developed in the United States in the 19th century and was named the Plymouth Rock breed. Other breeds include the Rhode Island Red, the Chanticleer, and the Jersey Giant. Um, well, I'm pretty sure the Rhode Island Red is a type of chicken. So I'm going to go with chicken. Yep. yep, chicken is correct. Nice. For 10 points. So you are at 20. All right. Question three. Legend has it that kissing the Blarney Stone endows one with great eloquence and skill at small talk, flattery, and storytelling, often called in the local parlance by this alliterative phrase. 
alliterative phrase. Is that the gift of gab? It is the gift of gab. Nice. <sighs> okay, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop on this one. Um, I may have just actually written an easy... No, 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 no. Here it comes. It it's a Broadway question. <laughs> Here we go. The Broadway song, Welcome to the Rock, which is a great song, by the way, refers to Newfoundland in this musical that tells the story of airplanes rerouted in the wake of September 11th and the town they were rerouted to. That has come from away. It is come from away. You knew come from away. You come from away. I've heard yeah. very good things about it. Oh, it's so good. I, I intend, I do intend to see it. I've, it's yeah. It's so good. Heard a lot of good um, things about it, so. Yeah, uh, it was. it's a great show. I think it would work as a listening experience without seeing the show. I'm not a fan of listening to the soundtrack without seeing the show. I, I tried it when I was in high school and like doing musicals and stuff, but I just, I couldn't. I couldn't get into the music without knowing, like, without seeing the show and knowing why the songs were happening, you know? Yeah. So Yeah, fair enough. Come From Away is a great show. And, uh, yeah, definitely worth your time if you can get a chance to see it one way or another. All right. Um, question five. First recorded in 1928 by Harry McClintock, this song is a country folk song describing a hobo's idea of paradise. You might know it from sanitized children's versions where the cigarette trees of the, of the original are replaced with peppermint trees, bubblegum trees, or similar things. Or you might remember it from the soundtrack of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where is the titular paradise where the lemonade springs and the bluebird sings? Uh, I know this soundtrack. I like... I love this movie. Oh, no. Oh, no. I don't think I'm gonna remember it. Oh, that's not the song that's coming to mind from the soundtrack. I don't, yeah, I, I do not know. I have to tap on it. All right. This song is the Big Rock Candy Man- Mountain. Big Rock Candy Mountain, of course. Of course yeah. Which... I knew from a sanitized children's version that I listened to when I was a kid. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. But yeah, there have been numerous, numerous recordings of it. Um, but a lot of people encountered it in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? All right. So you're at 40 points. Mm-hmm. And we'll call the final category rocks and minerals. Okay. I feel pretty good in that regard. Someone about it all. All right. For 80 points. This intensely colored metamorphic rock with a two-word name is typically made up of lazurite, calcite, sodalite, and pyrite. Well, two-word names and, and lazulite is pointing me in a certain direction, and I could be totally wrong, but I also have no idea as to what the actual correct answer is. So I'm going to say lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is correct. Oh, oh. oh my god! I tried I was, to. I was like, oh no! I bet I'll put all my points on this one. I, I, I try to. I, I mean, I try to make my my finals things that like hopefully 
there's enough pointers in there right. that there are a few ways in. Um, right. The first time yeah. through, I was like, oh, no. You said pyrite, so is it fool's gold? No, that's not yeah. intensely colorful. What a... Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I felt like I had a, a quiz that was ostensibly about rocks and then there actually were almost no rock questions in there so then i went looking for like a rock that we would know something about and it turns out almost everything i had in my head as a rock is not a rock it's a mineral <laughs> um, sure. so, so lapis lazuli was the one that i was like that's a rock and i've heard of it <laughs> there mm-hmm. are distinctive things about it i think it's been coming up in my child's video game a lot uh which game i uh, think it's coming up in fire emblem okay i could see that yeah yeah um anyway you finished with 80 points so congratulations thank you that felt good yeah good i'm glad yeah and thank you for uh telling me all about gibraltar i learned things which i know oh, might, which will seem surprising because i i did spend literally four hours there one point in my life so I'm basically an expert, but uh, I did, I did in fact learn things. So I'm so glad I learned things too. And uh, hopefully our listeners learned some things. Speaking of our listeners, thank you listeners for uh, being here with us. Um, wherever here is for you and <laughs> whenever here is for you. So glad to share this time with you. So thank you for your support. Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review or a rating if you would be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, you're certainly welcome to. Uh, we're on Patreon at Potent Potables. And whether that's of interest to you or not, um, let your friends know, especially if they're into Jeopardy about our podcast. They can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables or Twitter at PotentPotables1. You can email us at PotentPotablesCast at gmail.com, and our website is PotentPod.com. And until next week, uh, we will be back with another week of Jeopardy! recaps and a deep dive. May your minds be quick, and your buzzers be quicker. 